that you don't choose to meet with and might be difficult and all kinds of stuff. But raise, why do we do this? What's the point? How does doing this help us live the way Jesus wants us to live? Um, do we do this just out of duty? Because we should. Now, duty is not bad. It's good to do what's right and what's your duty, but um, the question of why matters enormously. Uh, and so that's what we're going to think about. And, and what we see in 1 Corinthians 14 is the Apostle Paul addressing um, uh, how the early church was meeting and what was going on in the church and what drives him the, the why, um, well, let me back up. One of the reasons we are to gather is it does seem, when you read the New Testament, that, that meeting together for worship is really, really important because Paul devotes masses of writing talking about it. Like 1 Corinthians 14 is all about how we organize ourselves as a community when we meet, for example. Actually, 12, 13, and 14 arguably as well. But there's 40 verses. That's a lot of papyrus to spend, a lot of ink to spend talking about arcane instructions around tongues and prophecy, right? And about how we should organize. And I, and I think that's because from the Bible's point of view, gathering to worship is really, really, really important. And it's really important that we get it done right or well. And why is it important? So let's go. Let's, uh, let's brainstorm this. Why do you reckon it's important to gather like this to worship? It keeps you on track. It keeps you on track. Uh, in, oh, it keeps you on track. So you're heading off in life. You get distracted. You come back here. It refocuses, recenters. Yep. Great. What else? Miles. Build each other up. Uh, that's great. Um, how do we do that? Encourage each other. Yeah. Because there's a lot of life that just kind of squashes you and, and you come here and it's like, yep, I've, I have words of encouragement. I'm lifted up. I get a sense of purpose and meaning again. I know that I'm loved. Yeah, awesome. What else? To learn. Who said that? Oh, Sue, yeah. Uh, what do we come to learn? Lots of things. Who do we learn from? From me, the Bible, from each other. Yeah, there we go. That's pretty good. It's great. Okay. Why, why else do we come? To bring commonality amongst all the diversity that we've got. Yeah, to bring commonality amongst all the diversity that we've got. Or to express that commonality, to rejoice in it. And is that sort of... Because we're different. Yeah. yeah. Great. Rolf? Yeah. Yeah. So, Rolf, if you didn't hear it over this side, and for those of you listening online, uh, we do it because the Queen does it. <laughs> In a helpful sense. Like, if she, if she goes to church every Sunday and during the week because it centers her in all the demands she's got on her life, it's meeting with God, meeting with other people is just critical. Yeah. 
And if, and if she needs to do it and can fit it in, she's, she's busier than most of us, even at age 94 or whatever she is. Yeah. What else? Why else do we do it? John? Um, to uh, adjust our sense of self, John said. What do you mean by that, John? <laughs> You're okay. The feeling's entirely mutual. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it messes with our sense of self because we don't get to choose who we come to church with. And we, a church is for broken people, so we hang out with people who are broken, and that, that comes at a cost. But it's really good for us. Who acknowledge brokenness. Yeah. Everyone's broken. The problem, yeah, and the most annoying people are those who don't acknowledge their brokenness. The Bible calls them Pharisees. Jesus had strong words to say about them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be. To be still. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Gives us a platform to worship. I like that. Tell me a little more what you mean by... Yeah. There is something incredibly significant and appropriate to gather to sing God's praises. The Bible is full of instructions for us to do that, uh, to lift our hearts, lift our voices, to acknowledge who God is. And I sometimes wonder why he needs that, because he can hear you in the shower. If there is a God, he can hear you in the shower. So why does he need us to do it together? Yeah, that's so. Yeah, I love so. That's really significant. Going back to last week, worship and love have to go together. And uh, and if there's no love, like how, you can't love people who you never meet with. So you got to kind of we have to actually meet with each other in order to love each other. And loving each other, as we looked at last week, is absolutely at the center of God's plan for our lives and our witness. So, um, yeah, that's right. Like God is love. That's right. I heard a sermon about that recently. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's beautiful. Like you can't, you can't actually be the church by yourself. You can't. There's no such thing as a solo Christian. Like because you can't express love just as a solo individual. And we've got it. And I think going back to the singing and the praise, um, and it goes back to a bit of what John said about adjusting our sense of self. Um, imagine if you were a if your kids never told you that they loved you or appreciated you, if you had kids and they never told you that, or you had grandkids and they never told you, that would be pretty empty, wouldn't it? That, that wouldn't be great for them or for you. Uh, 
And the way God has organized the world, what we do together is we meet as a family to tell our heavenly Father that we love Him and we appreciate Him. And that's really good for us, and it's really good for Him. Like, it delight, it makes Him really happy when we do that. So we should do a lot of it. Okay. Now, that's why we, we gather. There's a lot. That's, I mean, does anyone else have any as you... Yeah, Kim? Yeah. 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 So uh, it's a it's an important witness to to have it where we gather. We think God's worthwhile. We think it's worth meeting with each other, and it it tells the world that there's a God, uh, which goes to where we end up with one Corinthians fourteen. Paul is really keen to say that. Um, that we gather to give expression to the reality of who we are as brothers and sisters in Christ, to give expression to the kingdom of God, actually, to give people a taste of heaven, that, that our meeting makes visible in time and space the reality of that eternal family that will be all of ours one day. So when God makes the world new again, we'll live with him in a new creation in glory where everything is made perfect. And what we experience now is a foretaste of that. This is meant to be a working model for ourselves and each other, a working model of what true humanity looks like, about what the restored humanity looks like. That's what church is. It's pulling into the present, pulling into this age, a picture of restored humanity in the age to come. Which means that when people walk in and join us as we express that in our small groups and in our larger gatherings like this, they should look at what happens here and how we treat each other and how we treat God and go, there really is a God. And this is what it means to be renewed and restored and fully alive as a human being. That's what should happen. It's pretty cool. And then they should fall down and worship that God. Because they go, I want that. So that's what 1 Corinthians 14 is all about. And um, uh, I, uh, I'm feeling in a way more, more than almost any sermon I've preached in quite a while, just the limits of uh, time and structure as we try and unpack this. Because it's one of those passages that requires lots of workshopping and lots of thinking and lots of experimenting together to figure out how we do it. Um, but So what I'm going to try and do is a bit of a monologue to, well, get us along the lines uh, and just aware that it's one of those things we need to sit with and think with as a church for, for the years to come about, well, how do, we, how do we worship in a way that actually gets at the heart of what the Bible wants us to do and how we should do it in a way that is a, a working model of the new humanity? So uh, there are two key points that Paul makes about uh, that are to govern our worshipping together, if it's to be useful. One is intelligibility, and the second is order. So they're important. Uh, and they're important in the context that Paul was writing to, to the Corinthians. There were many um, uh, sects, prophets, uh, the pro- uh, 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 and um, 
oracles in the city of Corinth and in the ancient world, and much ecstatic worship um, would happen. And it would seem like the Corinthians, some of them, um, had started to believe that the measure of true spirituality was ecstasis, was ecstatic worship. If you could if you could lose yourself in an ecstatic experience evidenced by speaking in tongues in an uncontrolled fashion, prophecy, and, and everyone in a, in a religious frenzy, and I don't mean that in a disparaging way, then, that was, then you were really spiritual. Like that was... Because then, then you were like many of the other sects uh, around you and other religious experiences around you. Like, man, if you can just lose yourself, that's, that's the height of it. And, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians, no, that's not right. Um, what really matters, there's nothing wrong with religious ecstasy. Speaking in tongues is really important, as we'll see. Um, but intelligibility matters, like actually understanding, because um, God is a God who appeals to us as whole beings, including our minds, and he's a God who speaks and who communicates. And words, intelligible words, are the medium of relationship. And what God wants from people is to be drawn into a relationship with him. So you've got to understand God with your mind. You've got to get what, what others are saying. Very important. And the second one is order. Um, that is that uh, um, if you have no order in a, in a community, uh, you don't have any life. You have just chaos where the loudest voice, the most dominant personality, the most powerful person comes to have their way, and it actually makes it very hard for thoughtful people, quiet people, seekers, investigators, the weak and the vulnerable to find a place and connect with God. So the point of order is to enable people to connect with God and to connect with each other and make that accessible to everyone. So the, the, the fruit of order is that, it's, uh, that we experience God together more helpfully. And in particular, um, which we don't, it wasn't in the Bible reading, but when you look in the, in the second part of chapter 14, he has instructions around um, how women um, uh, and prophecy should happen in an ordered fashion. That is that you can't just yell out all the time. You can't, it's not like you're at an oracle of uh, Dionysius and you're just saying, tell me this, tell me that. Who am I going to marry? What's the weather going to be like? Should I make this business decision? Demanding, demanding, everyone just yelling out and asking for stuff. He says, no, no, don't do that. Uh, that's not a helpful way to behave. Um, and it does seem in Corinth, just to jump ahead, that, um, that uh, the, the women in the church were particularly, and po possibly in the broader culture, particularly prone um, culturally to to behave in that way and Paul's saying no no in church like just be quiet just let be ordered prophesy you know one at a time um, and I think that's why there's a prohibition later in 1 Corinthians 14 around women um, speaking out because it's disruptive and goes against order but I think that's culturally determined what you'll notice I don't know if you saw this but if you read 1 Corinthians 14 you'll see at the heart of 1 Corinthians 14, at the heart of our worship, is the exercise of spiritual gifts. And in particular, he's going to highlight two gifts. And in particular, he's going to make a big deal of one gift. What is, I don't know if you, when, when Rolf was reading this, what's the, the one gift that in 1 Corinthians 14 seems to be really, really, really significant to, uh, to, to exercise when a church gathers? Prophecy. It's... it's uh, 
It's everywhere. Um, follow, look at that, verse 1. Follow the way of love. That's picking up 1 Corinthians 13. So you, we've got to have love. Yep, for sure. God is love, all of that. Eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. All of the gifts of the Spirit, for sure. Especially long, exegetical three-point monologues. Especially prophecy. Especially prophecy. And then he unpacks this and he goes, prophecy is central to the life of the gathered community. So that begs the question, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, what the heck is prophecy? So we're going to talk about that, but then you already knew that. Oh, come on. I've been, th- I've been throwing that line in all morning and Tony just worked it out. <laughs> Thanks. A few people laughed. I thought it was funny. What is prophecy? Uh, so we have, uh, it's the, the notes are in the church app as usual. And uh, I'm going to make 13 points about what prophecy is and isn't. Uh, so we're not having a three-point monologue. We're having a 13-point monologue. So buckle up, settle in, grab a coffee. And uh, then we're going to have a, uh, we're going to have a crack at it. So here we go. Um, uh, and this uh, prophecy is an intelligible phenomena that does not require the sort of interpretation that tongues requires, but it does require weighing or sifting. Okay, so it's intelligible. You can understand what a prophet's saying, you can understand a prophecy, but you've got to judge it. It's not like, well, it's, yeah, you know, you've got to is this right? Is it wrong? Okay, makes sense. Um, the function of prophecy is building up exhortation and consolation. So it suggests that it's some sort of instruction. There's intelligible words. You ought to check out, got to weigh up, is it right? But it's meant to actually encourage us, build us up in our faith, help us connect with God, help us love people more. So it means it has some intellectual content, right, that's going to teach us stuff about the way the world works. Uh, verse 25 also suggests that prophecy might, in, might also involve divine insight into a present problem or the present condition of someone's heart. So verse 25 says, you know, that, when, you, you, that it, when people prophesy in a group like this, it exposes what's going on in people's lives. That's what prophecy does. It's like, whew. you come in as an outsider and, and someone in our group has a gift of prophecy, can, can speak a word of prophecy, can bring a prophecy to the group, that suddenly you, you go, has this person been, you know, reading my email? They get what's going on in my life and God's told them this, Right? Um, and uh, prophecy was certainly not a sermon by 20th century standards. So I don't know if you've heard this taught. Uh, uh, I'm very careful generally not to criticize other traditions or churches. I don't think that's enormously helpful. But there is a tradition in around us, in the city of Sydney, in Anglican circles, not to be too specific, um, where they would read a passage like this and say, well, prophecy really is what I'm doing now, a sermon. This is, this is really prophecy, taking the Bible and explaining it to people. And this is prophecy. Uh, clearly, I, that, that can't be the way the text works. And my, my response to that is, at that point, people who teach that are essentially preaching their experience over the text. 
So I feel uncomfortable with prophecy. I've never experienced prophecy. I, I, I'm very comfortable with, with preaching because I can do it and I can control it. Um, and and, and a prof- prophecy can be misused and it's all scary and weird along with tongues and I've not had any experience. So it can't possibly be what the text is saying. So we preach our experience, not actually what the Bible says. And what the Bible seems to say is, it's not what I'm doing now. It's what I'm doing now is teaching. I'm not prophesying. I could be. And, and I might have a crack at it a little later. Or you might have a crack at it. But it's not this. Okay, so um, I'm just going to keep going. There's a lot to cover here. And you don't have to agree with me on all these points because some of them are contentious um, or disputed in the scholarship. Um, uh, verse, uh, the fifth point is prophecy was a spontaneous utterance prompted by the Spirit and based on a sudden and uncontrived revelation from God. Okay, that is... uh, What I'm doing now is the basis of hours and hours of preparation and work. Prophecy is when we're praying together and we're in church and you're sitting around and you go, God has just put a thought in my head, a picture in my head, that gives me great clarity about something in your life or my life or something that is going to happen, and it comes directly from God. Uh, I can't control it. I, I, not, not I can't control it. I don't, I don't control the revelation. I control what I do with it. But it comes from God. Now, that makes people, some people really uncomfortable. And I think it makes people uncomfortable because in our culture... We are uncomfortable with the idea that God is directly present to us. Like God, we all, we're we're, we're all good Christians here. But our cultural default is God is, there is a God for sure, he's out there. But there's a big gap between the God who's there and my experience. And that gap is filled with the Bible or other stuff. But actually the Bible's view is God is here. And actually, that's the view of almost every other human culture and religion, that, that God's here, and, and there's not a big gap between God and me. So God can speak to us and give you revelation to be shared with the rest of us immediately. Of course, the question is, how do you hear that prophecy? And my view is, uh, and I think the Bible's view is, it comes to you as a thought, because thoughts are merely unspoken words and sentences, ideas put in your head from God. And, and, the goal, and the prophets learn to receive those, recognize they're from God, and then bring them to others in a way that encourages and teaches and builds them up. Okay? Uh, prophecy was controllable by the speaker, however, and thus unlike pagan ecstatic utterances of the Dionysiac sort. In Christian prophecy, both the mind and the spirit are edified. The min, the mind and the spirit are edified. So, so it's controllable. We're not talking about just uncontrolled sharing. And prophecy is a gift that all Christians should seek from God, and thus not a gift reserved for a particular group of Christians. So let me ask you a question. How recently have you got down on your knees, literally or metaphorically, and said to God, God, I would love to have the gift of prophecy. Okay, show of hands if in the last week you've prayed to God and said, I would love to be able to prophesy. Yep, John. Anyone else? The last two weeks? The last month? 
the last half hour. <laughs> the last half hour since you read it. Yeah, that's, yeah, thanks. Yeah, that's exactly. No, to be honest, last half hour, you go, suddenly you go, I should ask for this. I normally don't. I've been, as I've been working through this series in 1 Corinthians, I've been saying to God, Lord, I, give me the gift of prophecy. Give our church the gift of pro- people with the gifts of prophecy so we can, we can have this direct revelation from God working in our life together. I'm like, come on, Lord. Um, Paul doesn't regard prophecy as completely identical with teaching since he distinguishes the two in, in chapter 12, 29 and elsewhere. So there's a distinction. Oh, and by the way, the same people who say that prophecy is the same as preaching are the same people who think that women shouldn't preach even when Paul is clear in 1 Corinthians 11 that women can prophesy. But we typically don't let consistency get in the way of our you know, rhetoric and positions. It's just a human tendency. There's certain inconvenient things that make us inconsistent that we just ignore. Uh, that happens to be one of them. I might edit that out. Uh. <laughs> no, I won't. Archbishop. <laughs> That's what I really meant. Um, Paul may not... S- <laughs> Paul may not see Christian prophecy as having the same authority of Scripture, including Old Testament prophecy, since he speaks of judging or weighing of prophecies and thus sifting the wheat from the chaff. So when, when we prophesy in our church, it doesn't have the same authority as, uh, as an Old Testament prophet who stands up and says, like in Isaiah or Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, boom, you'd better do it or you're going to hell. That's, it's not the same. But that's not to say it's not from God. It's just that it comes with a, a different level of authority and it's got to be evaluated. So when someone says, um, and because the ultimate authority, the final word is scripture, but we're to judge and weigh up and Paul encourages that. And uh, prophecy is obviously a very important function in the early ecclesia or gathering or Paul would not urge it so strongly on the Corinthians. Like it's, I feel, let me just say this, how do I say this politely? I feel really stupid as I've been preparing this. I'm like, how have I missed for so long how important Paul thinks prophecy really is? Why have I, why have I never valued it as much as he values it? That's a really interesting thought, isn't it? I, I can, partly because for some years I did think prophecy was much more like preaching and then I read the Bible and I thought, it's really not. But then I just forget about it because it, it feels too uncomfortable and risky and we don't do it. And so we just do business as usual, which is just our culture and we think God's distant. And, and I just feel really, uh, here's a, I just feel really dumb. I'm like, how did I miss that? Because when you read it, it's so obvious, isn't it? So how did I miss that? Um, anyway. Uh, the 11th point, it probably had a measure of similarity to Old Testament prophecy and content, often consisting of paranetic forthtelling, that is teaching forthtelling. This is, this is what God wants now, telling the truth about a believer's condition or about God's plan or promises, but sometimes also foretelling if that was of relevance to the immediate audience. So sometimes God's revelation to us might include some advice or comments about what's going to happen. 
not just what has happened or what is happening, but what could happen as well. Um, and that seems pretty obvious. Um, the authority was in the word and the spirit inspiring it, not in the vessel or instrument that is in the person speaking the prophecy. What the way, one of the ways this can go wrong is that uh, we start to think someone, someone has, uses the gift of prophecy and we start to think the authority is the prophet. Oh, and they're very special. That's what was going on with the Corinthians, right? A, a status and honor culture. And so if you're a prophet, you've, you've got a deeper, closer connection with God. You've got to be listened to. And of course, we all know cults form that way. And I have all the power. Now I've got this direct hotline to God. You've got to do what I say. And it's all about me. And that's absolutely not the way the Bible sees prophecy working. The authority is in the words that you bring and the spirit who inspires you, and it all sits under the authority and judgment of Scripture and of the other prophets in the community. Uh, and that's really important. And then the final point is uh, prophecy was a gift that both men and women could and did exercise, as chapter 11 makes really clear, and that's important to put out. Okay. Um, If you're interested in the sake of intellectual honesty, these 13 points come from a, a scholar called Ben Witherington III uh, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians 14, and I think he has done a phenomenal job uh, of all the stuff I've read of just going, this is how prophecy works in this text. Uh, it's all in the app, and the PDF notes are available as well if you want to go away and think about these and process it. So now I'm going to stop and take questions and comments or prophecy. And I'm happy to jump back on any of the points if you want clarification, if you disagree, if you think, oh, or as you sit there and you think, this has provoked this thought or idea in my head. What, what do I think? Yeah. You know, I think that's where it's hard to discern. So we see, uh, yeah, we, we're put off by the, from this because we see really bad examples of it online from televangelists, largely from America. The movie Leap of Faith with Steve Martin, it's a great example of uh, what makes us cringe. There's lots of this in the African churches as well. If you, if you go to Africa... Um, uh, I'm linked into a whole bunch of groups from Zimbabwe, and you see some of the Zimbabwean prophets, and you go, wow, that is, I just don't think that's what Paul had in mind in 1 Corinthians 14. But then I don't think what we're doing now is what he had in mind either, so we've also got to learn with humility, eh? <laughs> and again, the, thing, the fact that, peep, that it can go wrong doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. It just means we've got to be careful and humble. Penny. I totally agree with you completely because I've just written an extraordinary book called Metanoia, which is written by an Australian activist called Anna Starr, who is in her thirties and lives in Melbourne. But at age forty five she lives a very wild lifestyle and she came to Christ through prophecy. Yep. And most people the second time she did it, they're talking about how God started speaking to her on behalf of other people, but 
Wow. Metanoia, Anamagan, uh, yeah, story of coming to God through the experience of prophecy and prophesying about others. Jono, I see that hand. Maybe. Sure. Uh, verses 22, 25. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, uh, tongues, then, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. They're, this is a long, this is going to be a long discussion, John. Just keep going. Okay. Uh, there's a technical word under the word sign, what that means, and it's a, a biblical sign that is typically a sign of judgment. So God gives signs that typically people reject. And so, like the sign of Jonah, people reject it, and that's a sign of judgment. So, uh, what, the, what Paul is saying there is that tongues are a sign that God is at work in the community that unbelievers will uh, reject, that, that they'll go, this is just nonsense, right? Um, it's not for believers, because it's a, but it's a sign almost of judgment for the unbelievers. Uh, prophecy, however, is not a sign for unbelievers, but for believers. I think there's a, a it's, he's still using the word sign there, which means, I think... Uh, prophecy, if believers reject prophecy, it functions as a sign of judgment against believers. So we are saying, no, God can't possibly do this. God's not in this. Okay, I think that's what's going on. So I think as best I can read it, and it's a little complicated, uh, and I could change my mind, my mind on it, but I think that's what's going on as I read the commentaries and, and the original there. Um, so then what happens... Uh, when the whole church, that is us, comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in. By the way, notice how important that is. The word inquirer or seeker um, implies that from the very earliest stage, uh, the Christian community was an open community that people, it wasn't a closed sect or cult. The assumption always was when we gathered for worship like this, there would be people coming in to check it out. We'd be bringing friends. They'd be coming in and going, what is this weird thing that you're doing where you love people and you, uh, you know, eat the blood of a person who died a while, like drink the blood of a person and, you know, you sacrifice babies at baptism and this is weird. What's going on? And you've all become humble and like you care for women and like you've stopped murdering babies. So tell us about it. So the assumption in the early church was there were always unbelievers and inquirers, uh, which, by the way, is why which is something we've lost in the church. Uh, we've, we've tended to think now, church, this, the gathering is for believers. And you go, no, it's for both. Um, so they come together. Um, and if everyone speaks in tongues, if, every, if it's completely unintelligible, won't they just think that you've lost your mind? They'll go, you're just crazy. I don't, I don't understand any of this. But if an unbeliever or inquirer comes in while everyone's prophesying, so someone walks in and we are, we are relaying to each other and to them messages that come from God that are intelligible, that are clearly of divine origin because it doesn't rely on pre-existing knowledge. They are convicted of sin and brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare so they'll fall down and worship God, exclaiming God is really among you. 
Um, so that's the Anna McGann story. That's the God, the people coming in and saying, wow, God, how did you know that about me? You've read my mail. And it's not just from the front, but it's people talking to each other that we are, we are listening to God all the time in order to bring a message to each other from God to build each other up. So it's mutual ministry. Everyone's doing it. And it could be a word that you say to someone over morning tea. It could be we could restructure how we meet. So there's more open prophetic times as we meet here. I've had that sometimes. So sometimes I think what I do is prophesy because sometimes when I know people, particularly visitors, have said to me, it's like you were speaking directly to me. And I'll be like, well, that's funny because what you heard me saying directly to you wasn't actually what I was saying, but they heard, you know, God used that and it was just like, wow, God's speaking through you. So sometimes I have that when I'm doing this kind of monologue exercise, but actually it's meant to be just people come in and there's a sense God is here and they're, they're hearing God through other people and they fall down and worship. They come to Christ. Is that, is that a helpful little exposition of that? Thank you. Yeah, Rolf. Yep. <laughs> yes. be <laughs> i think um that's a really good question so the question is based on this is it does prophecy have to be spontaneous um prompted by the spirit based on uncontrived revelation from god and is that not different to how we understand healing where we talk about god healing can be can be spontaneous and uncontrived at one end of the spectrum uh, and or healing is a result of taking your antibiotics right uh, and so that's a spectrum on which healing works. And I would say exactly right. God's healing energy can come directly in an unmediated form to somebody to reorganize the, um, you know, the, the matter in their bodies or minds. Or it can be mediated through antibiotics or surgery. And, and that's the same God working. Uh, I would say the category for this would be word gifts. So if word gifts are the the category, the same category as healing, on the one end you have the gift of teaching, which is sort of what I'm doing now. So I've spent years studying, thinking, reading, blah, blah, blah. I'm applying, and God is using all of that work that I've done in order to teach, right? But then I think on that same continuum, God can directly give me or you or anyone else here a direct revelation that hasn't come from years and years of study. might be informed by that. It, it might sound like that, but it actually, it's, it's different. So it just comes directly to them. I, I think that's the continuum. So word gift continuum parallels healing continuum. And I think there's a directness that can come through prophecy that distinguishes it from teaching. Is that...
Yeah, it is. But while I'm, but I'm also really open as I'm here for God to use me directly, for sure. And God, see, and it, then it's interesting. The other thing you'll notice about me. So I'm, I'll just talk about me. It's, it's cheaper than therapy. Um, so it, not as effective. Jeez. <laughs> Hey, how, how would you know, John? I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm only the great example of well self-actualized integrated human being because I spent 30 years using the pulpit to talk about myself. I, imagine if I'd spend all that time in therapy. Um, I think God uses our natural abilities in all of this as well. So I don't think there's a separation between the natural and the kind of so-called supernatural. Um, God has given me the ability to understand people intuitively and very quickly. So from a very young age, people and their motives seem very transparent to me. You may not have noticed this about me. Uh, some, uh, it's discon- some people find it quite... Like I just, you're all pretty transparent, what drives you, your motives. I, I would be, you know, so that's really useful. And it comes from being hypervigilant as a young person growing up in a trauma environment, right? Um, and learning to read people. So, so I have all of that. That's my life, that's my personality type, that's my family of origin. I also study a lot and I read and I think about people. I'm fascinated with psychology. And God uses all of that. But then prophecy is then sometimes God will go, bang, here's actually something that I should say that I couldn't have known using any of those other means. Yeah, I think that's how it works. In fact, I'm pretty sure that is. Kim? God can use the intellectually impaired to prophesy, for sure. And children. In fact, Acts chapter 2, Joel's prophecy in the Old Testament says that that, um, men and women and boys and girls will prophesy. God can speak through kids, for sure. Okay, speaking of which, so lovely to have all our children back. So I'm going to leave it there. Um, But what I really want to be committed to not doing is just teaching this as a set of ideas and then moving on with business as usual. Like, that would be dumb. So we are on a journey to... Well, let me me pray. I'm going to pray. We're on a journey to do verse 1, to follow the way of love, to eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, and especially prophecy. Like that would be, I just think that's what our church, that's clearly what our church needs, according to the Bible. So I'm going to pray, then we're going to sing again, and then we're going to have morning tea. And uh, it's so wonderful to see the kids back. Lord God, help us as a church family to follow the way of love. Help us to eagerly desire every gift that you want to give us by your Holy Spirit. But especially, Lord Jesus, I pray for our church that you will, you will give us a hunger for and then the reality of the gift of prophecy. Uh, it's a little unclear in my mind how that's going to work and what it's going to look like, and I'm sure it's unclear in many of our minds. But this feels like a very significant step and, uh, to take as a church to just stand up and say, we desire this gift, Lord. Deeply, we desire it. We want to see it. We want to see your Holy Spirit. Uh, gift us with this and we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. We're going to stand